He is an attorney and author. He wrote the next 90s, Ewing, Oakley, Starks, and the brawlers that almost want it all. We welcome to Hoopsology podcast, Paul Nepper. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Matt. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for joining us. This, this is a really fun topic for both myself and Justin as kids really cemented our basketball fanhood uh, from that period of time in the 90s. We were both born in the mid 80s. So this is really kind of when uh, we became you know, basketball fans. And, and I wanted to ask you first to start off with about your background as, as a basketball fan. What got you into the sports? Um, when did you start watching the sport and kind of what, what started your basketball fanhood? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I grew up in New York. Uh, I lived in Queens till I was eight and then moved out to Long Island. And um, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, I, I played basketball from a young, young age and, you know, probably around seven, eight, started watching a little bit. I watched a little Knicks. I watched uh, a little St. John's um, back when St. John's was, you know, a powerhouse and um, when Chris Mullen was there. Um, and, uh, my dad would take me to, you know, one or two Nick games a year, one or two St. John's games a year. And then I, I got really big into the Knicks, it, like when, uh, Rick Pitino got there. So Pitino was the coach from 87 to 89. Mm. Um, and 1987, I was, I was 10 years old and I, and that's kind of when I, I, I really got really into them and, you know, got, got, became a big fan of some of the guys like. Ewing and Oakley and Mark Jackson, who, um, of course, carried into the kind of the Pat Riley era, um, which my book covers. Awesome. And, and so getting into the book and was um, I mean, what, what prompted you kind of diving into the extensive research that it takes to do in, uh, you know, writing a book? Um, were you was it was it mostly like, um, you know, labor of love type thing? What uh, what prompted writing the book? Yeah, it was very much a labor of love. You know, um, obviously the last 20 years really have been pretty miserable for, for the Knicks and, and Knicks mm. um, And so, you know, I mean, Nick, Nick fans, myself included, love those 90s teams as, as we live through them. Um, and I think there's, you know, the nostalgia for those teams has only grown over the years as, as the last, you know, as... as We've uh, there's been really a shortage of quality basketball in New York. So mm. um, I think about, I think about those teams a lot. You know, I long for the days when 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 the Knicks were competitive. And uh, I, it was really, you know, one day I, I thought to myself, you know, um, somebody should really write a book about those teams. You know, they have um, they were so they're so beloved by New Yorkers and, and, and Knicks fans everywhere, really. Um, they were a really good team for throughout the decade. Um, I think they were an important team because I think, you know, the, the league there's because of their style of play, the league made a number of rule changes to, to kind of outlaw a lot of the physicality and, and fighting, frankly, that, that they were at the forefront of. Um, so I thought they were important in the league and there were a lot of, you know, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, there, you know, there've been a lot, there, there were a lot of great rivalries, um, the bulls in the early nineties, um, mm-hmm. Uh, Knicks and Pacers met six times in the playoffs in those 90s and at the end of the 90s with Knicks and, and Miami Heat was pretty heated and then lastly my last thought was um, because at some point I, I said as I said somebody should write a book about this and at some point I thought well why not me 
And awesome. so then you start thinking about, okay, is this really a, a book? Will this make a quality book? And for all the reasons I mentioned, I thought it would. And I think the last thing that that really got me, and I think what makes the book work is what makes most most book work, most books work is that you need good characters. And I felt like they were good characters, you know, with with Ewing and Riley and Oakley and Starks and Mason and Jeff Van Gundy and Latrell Sprewell with his whole saga and Larry Johnson and, you know, who was a huge star when he first came to the league and Charlie Ward who won the Heisman Trophy and then, mm. you know, became a, a the next starting point guard. So I, I felt like there were a lot of um, a lot of good characters to kind of use as jumping off points for the for the story. Absolutely. hundred percent agree. Um, can you, before we get into kind of the, you know, the precursor to the nineties Knicks, um, can you just kind of give us an idea of the significance of basketball in New York in general? I I'm someone who I've always lived on the West coast right now. Uh, Justin and I are our best friends. We live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where we don't have a, a sports <laughs> franchise really. So, I mean, Justin loved bulls from the nineties. I I've kind of just, you know, I love the sport of basketball. I've always respected greatness. I have some family down in Houston. So, uh, you know, Elijah Wan's one of my, my favorite players of all time. And I love the Rockets. Um, but can you give us, you know, cause I guess from someone on the West coast who, who maybe um, isn't as into the sport of basketball as maybe Justin and myself, you know, you look at the titles that teams in New York have won. And I mean, of course the Yankees with their success, you'd expect there's a huge Yankees fan base um, for the giants who have, who have won, I believe what four Super Bowls. Um, there, there's been a lot of success there as well. So you might think, oh, New York is probably mostly a baseball town, then football, then basketball. But if you look in the culture, um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Where would you think basketball ranks in New York? And, and can you just describe that culture to someone who's ignorant and has never been to New York like myself? Yeah, I, New York is a basketball town, period. Mm. Um, you know, they call basketball the city game. And New York is the is the biggest city in the country, um, and I you know I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, I think there's something about New York that lends itself to the city, the playgrounds, right? You have the playgrounds in New New York City, and of course there's such a big playground culture. It's not just the Knicks. It's it's you know you have Rucker Park and you have these um, Earl the Goat Manigault and uh, Joe the Destroyer and Pee Wee Kirkland, all these, uh, you know, playground legends um, for New York. So you have all that. You know, I, 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 as I said, I grew up in Long Island, but I lived in Manhattan for 13 years. Um, and you, you can't walk more than 10 minutes without seeing a, a hoop, a basketball. Mm. Um, there's something about it, about the city living as well. You know, a lot of certain parts of the city are, are in, in poverty um, and people can't afford equipment to play football. They don't have the space to build baseball fields, but you can put a hoop anywhere and mm. you can play by yourself. And so that's you have a lot of those, a lot of kids like, you know, Stefan Marbury, Sebastian Telfair, a lot of New Yorkers that didn't have much money, kids from the projects, they always had a place to play basketball, whereas they may not have had access to other sports. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, as you noted, the Yankees have had a great deal of success. Um, the, the Giants have had a great deal of success. Um, in addition to basketball, I think being the city game, 
the Knicks kind of own the city as none of the other major teams did. <clears throat> and so New York is definitely a Yankees town, but there are a lot of Met fans. Um, New York is the Giants are the number one team, but there are a lot of Jeff fans. You know, I don't know what the percentage is, but maybe it's 60-40, even if it's 65-35. It's a lot, you know, there's a lot on, on the other side. Uh, the Knicks, you know, until the Nets moved to Brooklyn, I don't know what year that was now, 10 years ago, whatever that, whenever that was, mm-hmm. um, Knicks had the five boroughs. They had New York City to themselves. And that's where New Jersey and, um, I mean, even New Jersey, most people rooted for the Knicks. It just, they, they just kind of had the whole city to themselves. So when they were winning, everyone was on board, more so than even, you know, when the Yankees are winning, it's a weird thing with New York, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is that it, it, it's like you pick a team and you hate the other one. So if you're a Yankee <laughs> fan, you hate the Mets. If you're a Giant fan, you hate the Jets and vice versa. So when the Giants are winning, yes, that 60 to 65% of the city is pumped, but a lot of the city is like, yeah, I don't, you know, screw the Giants. <laughs> Same with the Yankees and Mets. The Knicks, you know, that number is for New York City and, and surrounding suburbs, that number is in the 90s. So they they own the city in a way that no other team has. So you combine that with the, the percentage of people that are into it with the fact that I, I, I it is kind of the heart blood of the city of the game of basketball. Um, people just go crazy in New York when 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 the Knicks are playing well. Mm. Gotcha. So the stage for, I, I guess, everything that that follows and sets up the 90s Knicks, I mean, it's it's kind of impossible to uh, distinguish the 90s Knicks from Patrick Ewing, right? I mean, he's, he's as a player, the centerpiece of that team. Uh, so, of course, the Knicks, the last title that they won was in 1973. There's like a 12-year gap there between winning that title and the Knicks drafting Patrick Ewing. Uh, there's there's a lot of fun stuff to read about with that. There's, of course, the uh, lottery draft pick conspiracy about Patrick Ewing, which which is kind of funny um, and fun to talk about. But um, I kind of wanted to get your feel on what was the fan base like? What were expectations like? And um, how big was drafting Patrick Ewing? I mean, was this something that like the fan base interest was pretty steady and this just heightened that? Was this something that reignited the fan base? What what was all that like? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, the passion's always there for New York fans, and you can see it even the last few years. It, mm-hmm. it always it's remarkable that you know you could the Knicks could be playing, the Knicks could have the third worst record in the league, and they could be playing a meaningless game in the first weekend in April, and the f- crowd is going crazy in a tight game in the final two minutes. Mm-hmm. So there is there is. Um, I think the the fan base there is always engaged, but the the level of excitement when they got Patrick off the charts, and it's hard to explain to people exactly, you know, the magnitude of that because, um, for one, Patrick was was, I mean, like Le- LeBron, Zion Williamson, that kind of level, you know, star. Um, people are calling him the next Bill Russell. Uh, that's who he was compared to most, most, most often. Um, you know, he was he was one of those guys that is a no doubt first pick, far and away. Um, everyone thought he was going to win multiple championships in the NBA. That was that was the thinking. And you know, the thing about it too was back then, you know, Patrick played four years in college, four years college basketball. Guys did that, you know, and mm-hmm. and uh, he, you know, he won um, 
he won one championship. He lost in the championship game two other times. So imagine if you saw LeBron or Zion play four years in college and you yeah. got to see that on a weekly, you know, over four years, they, just the recognition. I mean, those guys were so big without LeBron didn't play college. Zion only played one year and they were so recognizable. Imagine having a guy of that magnitude play four years, how much excitement that would generate, how much name recognition that would be. And so when he was drafted, Sports Illustrated wrote an article. He's he's the most highly acclaimed athlete. I think they call him the most highly acclaimed athlete to ever enter professional sports. Wow. Like he was just that big a deal. Um, and so it was um, it was huge, you know, when they won that lottery. And it was back then the lottery, it wasn't it it was it wasn't a weighted lottery. So there were only seven teams in the lottery. Each team had an equal percent chance i think it was like 14.3 percent chance of winning um so it wasn't like the knicks went in as favorites and people were expecting it it was it was a surprise and it was it was like wow well like we're we're back you know this is it we're back we're gonna win championships again wow and so i mean the the new york media scene uh, especially back at that time is is legendary as being you know, just, just kind of like a, a pressure cooker. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd imagine that, you know, the the intensity focus placed on that team just blew up after Patrick Ewing had been drafted. Um, and, and given that he had, you know, I, I believe he had some injuries his rookie year, but still won the Rookie of the Year award um, and then came back, had strong seasons after that. And I mean, pretty much throughout the 90s, if, if we're being honest. But um was there a difference or I guess what was the difference between the pressure from the media after Patrick Ewing was drafted and then maybe the media focus and attention that Pat Riley brings to the team when he joined in 91, was it kind of just a compounded thing or about equal the whole time? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, I think, um, I think the initial, I think initially it was, it was bigger for Patrick because he was mm. the player um, as big of a personality as, as, as Riley was Patrick was the player and, you know, just, so I think that was bigger, but um, it wasn't level the whole time. So, you know, Patrick, uh, it was disappointing. You know, they, they were bad mm. in the first few years there. I mean, mm. people thought they were going to be instant contenders and they were bad. And so I think a lot of the uh, enthusiasm dissipated over his first several years there. And he had, they were kind of a lost franchise a little bit. I think, you know, Patrick played for, I think it was five coaches in his first six years. Wow. So there was a lot of turnover, a lot of new coaches, a lot of new general managers, presidents. Um, and I think the fan base was frustrated and a little disillusioned with the direction of the team and, and to, to an extent with Patrick. Um, so the hype had definitely died down and, and Riley really Riley's arrival rekindled it. Hmm. Gotcha. Well, what was that transition? Like, I mean, we have Riley who is the coach of the Showtime Lakers, obviously a ton of success with the Showtime Lakers. What was that like initially for him coming over to the Knicks in 91? I mean, I, I would argue even today, we still have kind of like this West Coast, East Coast, you know, friendly kind of rivalry uh, between the coasts. What was that like? And how was he able to transition from coming to the Showtime Lakers to kind of more like a, you know, hardworking, 
Knicks East Coast team? I mean, was was it just as simple as like, hey, check out my rings? Or <laughs> how, how was he able to, um, I guess, garner favor with, with the fans in the city of New York? Yeah, I mean, he was... He- yeah, I don't think he was quite as brash about it. Allegedly, when he met with LeBron James, when he was recruiting him to come to, to Miami, he took all his rings and threw them on the table, literally. <laughs> um, and he was, but so I, he wasn't quite that uh, that bold about it. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, certainly the locker room, there's that instant, you know, respect. There's that instant um you know, you, there, there's a certain gravitas, a certain cachet that comes with that kind of success. So I think he had instant respect from the fans, certainly from his players, um, <clears throat> all around. Um, it was interesting, as you note, because people were like, oh, the sh- he's known as the Showtime Lakers, up and down, fast place basketball. Um, I, I talked to Rudy Tomjanovich in my book and who coached the Rockets and he coached again mm-hmm. throughout the 94 finals. And Rudy T told me, you know, the measure of a, a great coach is a coach who could win with different styles of play, win different ways. And he said, mm-hmm. and Pat did that. He showed he could do that in New York. I think Riley, you know, very astutely looked at his personnel and said, you know, this is, I, I don't have Magic Johnson. You know, Mark Jackson was a good point guard. He was a Magic Johnson. I don't have Magic Johnson here. I don't know if James Worthy, you know, a forward who could run the floor like that. Um, I have I have Patrick Ewing and Charles Oakley, two big, bruising, physical interior players. The other thing which Riley talked about a little bit was he felt that was the way the league was going. You know, that the, the the Lakers were dethroned by the bad boy Pistons. Hmm. And he felt that's that actually as much success as he had running Showtime, he thought the way to win the league now is through tough, hard-nosed physical play and defense. And so I think it was part that that was the personnel he had and part that that he, he felt that would, that was kind of the way to do it now. Mm, Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. One of my questions actually here for you was how much did the bad boy Pistons influence how that roster was built? So, I mean, it sounds like, uh, of course, we had physical basketball in the eighties, that kind of continued with the Knicks through the nineties. I mean, how, how do they kind of compare um, and contrast with those bad boys Pistons? I, I mean, I would say for one thing, you know, they're, they're really maybe isn't this sense of a villain, at least from my perspective, and maybe I'm wrong. It isn't really a sense of a villain uh, kind of like Bill Lambeer on the bad boy Pistons, but were the Knicks and the way they were built purely kind of influenced by this physical 80s basketball or um i mean were they trying to put a new spin on that in in some ways yeah i think they were i think they very much were um but i not in a vacuum in other words like you had you had patrick ewing a great interior player um and you had oakley who was oakley wasn't as reviled as lame beer but he was that tough enforcer who led the league in flagrant fouls a number of seasons that kind of thing he was like that so i think part of it was that was kind of what he had to work with and then and then anthony mason was in camp that year who was like that Xavier mcdaniel was very tough a lot of it was personnel based but Mm. yes riley was very uh as i alluded to before he was very influenced by the pistons and and did want to play um that style of play Again, personnel is an issue. If, if he, you know, if he had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, 
he played he played differently if he had you know even if he had like a portland team of clyde drexler and terry porter a backcourt like that he probably would have played it differently and and played a more faster paced game up and down the court that kind of thing so it's a mixture a mixture i think of of what he had on hand and and what he thought would work Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think there's even, you know, interviews with like coach Popovich where he talks about, you know, playing to your strengths. So it, it sounds like right. you know, that's, that's exactly where Pat Riley was going with that. Um, makes a lot of sense. I, I wanted to get just your, your personal opinion as someone who did a ton of research on this team for this book and someone who is a devoted Knicks fan. I mean, for one thing, what was your, your favorite Knicks team, your favorite Knicks roster and then, you know, I guess maybe the answer is obvious that it's when they were in the 94 finals against the Rockets. Um, but when did you feel this team was closest to winning the title? I mean, I know in terms of like distance games left, maybe that 94 finals team is the obvious answer. But um, I guess, you know, maybe um, first, let's just say, when do you feel like this team was closest? When did they have the best chance? Yeah, well, I, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, clearly they were closest. I'll, I'll, I'll make a distinction. So they were closest, obviously, in 94, right? They got to game seven of the finals. Uh, a lot of people forget the end of game six, the Knicks were down two. John Starks lined up a three-pointer, and Starks was on fire. Starks had 16 points in that fourth quarter. He lined up a three-pointer, and Akeem Olajuwon made an incredible play to just get his fingertip on that ball and it fell short. Mm. And that was at the buzzer. I mean, that was a championship winning shot. So you can't get any closer, right? Right. Um, That was the closest. I maintain, and I know a number of guys from those Knicks teams believe that the 1993 team was actually better than the 94 team. Um, Mm. And the 93 team lost in the conference finals to the Bulls. Uh, it's remembered very much for game five, which is known as the Charles Smith game, when Charles Smith was rejected four times in the closing seconds. Mm. Um, of course, you know, the following year in 94, yes, they made it to game seven in the finals. They beat the Bulls, but Michael wasn't there. Right. So they um, they got further, but it was it was an easier path. Mm-hmm. Um, the 93 team won more games. They won 60 games. Um, they had the number one seed over the Bulls that year. Um, and so I, I actually, they just, uh, you know what, you can't say it was much better and it was a very similar roster, but they just seemed to be a little more connected, a little more locked in, um, than, than in, than in 94. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, uh, personally your favorite to watch, you know, I mean, I know fans, you always have like those guys that you root for, those guys that are near and dear to your heart, maybe even if, even if they're not as successful as some of the other rosters, what what would be your favorite Knicks roster that you've seen? Uh, <laughs> Tough to pick. You know, yeah, I mean, the, the 93 and 94 teams, because they just, they played so hard every night. Um, yeah, I mean, those teams were 93 and 94. Hmm. So after Pat Riley, the team, uh, I believe that was right after that 94 season, right? He yeah, the summer of 95. 95. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, so after Pat Riley leaves, you know, there's still sustained success on this Knicks team, um, you know, through, I mean, really every single season they are, they are in it. Um, and then even in 99, even with Pat Ewing getting injured during the playoffs, they managed 
from the eight seed, amazingly, to um, make it all the way to the finals against the Spurs. I, I remember very vividly watching uh, that NBA finals in particular because uh, Latrell Sewell was so entertaining, of course. I even I, I loved watching uh, Marcus Camby. To me, it, it just felt like almost every single rebound, he was tipping it in with a dunk. Like that was just a thing that one of my first experiences to tip in dunks was Marcus Camby. He's like mm-hmm. forever tied to that for me. Um, what were they able to do? I mean, I mean, I know uh, Jeff Van Gundy had been on as an assistant uh, under Pat Riley. And I believe even before that, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, so he kind of takes the reins and was it just this, this continuity that they had in their coaching that, that made them able to sustain the success? So there was a, there was a uh, a weird little interlude actually um, when when Riley left he was replaced by Don Nelson right um, and Van Gundy stayed on as assistant coach and uh, and Nelly had, had had a great reputation was a three time coach of the year uh, his tenure in New York was a disaster um, mm. he only lasted forty five games uh, fifty five games I'm sorry their record wasn't that bad. But um, there was he, he was feuding with Patrick. He was feuding with Starks. It, it just mm. it wasn't working at all. He got very much away from what they were doing, their identity, which was defense. Excuse me, defense, mm-hmm. uh, working hard, playing through Patrick. Um, and Van Gundy took over for Nelson, and it was like a return to normalcy. He kind of went back to everything Riley did, including using a lot of the exact same plays with the same names and, and, and reverted back to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the reason I think they remain competitive is a couple of things. I uh, definitely Van Gundy's coaching. Um, you had Ewing was the constant who was there throughout, you know, the star player who everyone kind of followed his lead. Um, the other thing was they, they did a good job of kind of rebuilding on the fly a couple of times. I don't, mm. I don't know if you would say rebuilding because they weren't bad at retooling, um, mm-hmm. So in 1996, the summer of 96, they signed uh, a new bat starting backcourt. They signed Chris Childs. Derek Harper got old and they let him leave and they brought in Chris Childs and Alan Houston. Houston added a whole new dimension to the team because they mm-hmm. really didn't have a knockdown shooter before that. They also traded Anthony Mason for Larry Johnson that summer. Mm. So they kind of retooled and that gave them, uh, made them a little younger, uh, a little more offensive firepower <clears throat> and then again in in 99 as you were talking you, you named the two guys Sprewell and Camby um before that season they traded Starks and Oakley who were both getting older and slowing down um and got Camby and Sprewell in return um so really in 96 and then again in 98 99 they 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 kind of turned over the roster retooled a little bit and that's what enabled them to keep it going. And then of course you have the constants of Van Gundy coaching really in Riley's image and, and you in at the forefront. Yeah. Very much reminds me of um, a team in the Boston Celtics of late that has been doing that kind of consistent retooling. Um, you know, famously Danny Ainge didn't really get um at least didn't appear to be super emotionally tied to Isaiah Thomas, got a lot of criticism uh, for trading him away uh, in some ways, but it seems like from a roster development 
standpoint, it, it was the smart move to do. I mean, unfortunately, you know, Isaiah Thomas had those injuries he dealt with and everything. Um, sure. What? How were those moves, you know, trading away, I mean, big names like Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley, is that something... I, you know, you see the Knicks fans like booing on draft night if, if they're unsatisfied <laughs> with the pick. Um, I mean, these these are guys that the fans loved. I mean, especially thinking of Mason and Charles Oakley uh, in particular and, and John Starks at, at a lot of times, too. Um, I mean, was this met with a lot of criticism from the fan base? Or I, I know New York fans are also very smart basketball fans, too. So do you think there was this emotional tie that uh, caused a lot of anger or was there understanding of the plan? Yeah. Uh, Probably mixed. You know, I, I, think, I think, you know, each trade was a little different. Um, there was, there was a mixture on, on each end. Um, I think a mixture of emotions, even within individual Nick fans uh, for myself as well. Um, you know, starting with the Mason trade, Mason was a crowd favorite. New York loved him. He was tough. He was hard-nosed. He was from Queens. He was a New Yorker. Um, you know, we, we kind of developed him out of nowhere. Mm. Um, and uh, so people were very sad to see him go. It helped that you got a big name in return in Larry Johnson. Um, so, you know, you weren't trading him for, you know, you weren't trading for cap space or future compensation or draft picks. Or like, it was Larry Johnson who wasn't the same player that he had been, but a lot of people were excited about the idea of Larry Johnson. Mm. And so I think, I think there were somewhat mixed feelings about that trade. Um, the least controversial, I would say, certainly was the Sprewell deal, ironically. I mean, because mm. Sprewell himself was a, was a tremendous controversy, but I think among the fan base, it was viewed as, as uh, really a very low-risk move. And Starks was one of the most loved Knicks ever. So I think everyone was sad to see him go, mm. but I don't think anyone really thought it was a bad trade. Right. Mm. Um, and, and that, you know, Hey, we could Sprewell is, uh, you know, he's an all-star and Starks is getting older and he's not the player he was a few years ago. And if we could get this guy for Starks and, you know, some other crap, like basically we're getting him at a discount because he strangled his coach. Um, mm. So um, <laughs> I, I think, I think, you know, people were okay parting with Starks for that. The Oak thing too was was mixed feelings because Oak was so loved, is still so loved, and mm -hmm. um, uh, but Camby had been this number two pick in the draft just a couple of years earlier, and so and was about ten years younger. Um, so I remember mixed feelings with that too. That hey, you know, I don't know if Camby's ready to step into this role that Oakley had and and be the player Oakley was, but this is a move for the future. And, and so people were, uh, I think I'm for the most part on board with that. Gotcha. Yeah. And it seems to me like it, it was a different time in being an NBA GM where you could maybe get a lot more for a big name that was on the decline as, as far as their, um, you know, remaining years left in the league or, or potential athleticism that they, they had left. Uh, it seems a lot different uh, back then than it is now where, uh, I mean, every single trade is, and maybe that's, of course, expanded media, social media, et cetera. I mean, everything is yeah. so scrutinized nowadays, uh, but it seems like tons of smart moves for the Knicks there uh, to, to keep that sustained greatness. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of um, segueing into 
you know, after Patrick Ewing is the team, um, you know, we, we get into sort of the, the fall of the Knicks, I guess you could say, I, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but, um, I mean, would you attribute the, the past 20 years of the Knicks to simply mismanagement? I mean, overspending on, um, you know, guys that didn't pan out, things like that? Um, or is there more to it than simply, you know, front office mismanagement? I think it's the front office. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Hard to say otherwise. Yeah, great. you know, I, 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 saw, I remember who said it. I, I think it was a Knicks writer said on Twitter, you know, if, if the – the team is bad for a year or two. Maybe it's the coach. The team is mm. bad for three or four years. Maybe it's the general manager. The team is bad for twenty years. It's the owner. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, James Dolan um, has has brought in the wrong people to run the team. Mm. And and in the couple of occasions where he's brought in okay people, he didn't give them the freedom to do the job, and he you know, interfered and, and got in the way. Um, look, there have been, there's, there's, there's been some bad luck along the way. I mean, there's always, you know, when you're, when you're really good, you get some good luck, you know, sometimes the ping pong ball bounces your way. And when you're, when, the, when you're really bad, it usually part of it is bad luck as well and injuries and this and that, but yeah, I mean, so it's, you know, there's been this, this approach of chasing big names, whether it be a player uh, in, going back to Antonio McDice, who was coming off terrible knee problems to, mm. to Marbury, to Mello, to Amare, to whoever, you know, just always chasing that big name um, with, with coaches as well. And, and, and front office, Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson really wasn't the right man to, for that job. Um, mm -hmm. but no disrespect to Phil Jackson, magnificent coach, but, it's hard to become a president of a, of a, and a team and be responsible for personnel at like, he was like 70 years old, you yeah. know, like to start, that's a tough job. Um, and, uh, but he was a big name and, and the, the same with the coaches, you know, there was Larry Brown and there was Mike D'Antoni and there was, um, and those guys are wonderful coaches, but it would, it just, it was, it was like, they just didn't get it that you need to, to build a culture that you need to, um, cultivate young players and young assets, and uh, you can't just go for names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and even uh, you know today or um, last night, maybe it was. You know, the rumor had been around for a few days. Uh, the Knicks are getting Derrick Rose. It looks like, right. uh, which which makes me very hesitant because I was really happy to see the Knicks you know, kind of hovering around that eight seed area, uh, even higher than that at the start of the season. Uh, so it does, it does make me nervous to bring in Tom Thibodeau guy um, who is, you know, well past his prime, not, not his fault in many cases. Of course, we know the the horrible injuries Derek Rose has dealt with and, and stuff like that, but really just gives me pause that, you know, are, are the Knicks back to old habits of, of the 2000s when it looked like there might have been this growth happening? You know, time, time will tell, of course. Um, I wanted to circle back and get your thoughts on, on Patrick Ewing um, and his relationship with the New York media in particular and his, his star at large. Because we, we saw, you know, couple of years later, I, I believe uh, Shaq was did six years after Patrick Ewing, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I might be off by a year or two there, but um, 
you know, Shaq is, of course, this this big personality becomes a megastar. And, you know, listeners, if if you are 25 and under, I would say maybe even 30 and under uh, and a casual NBA fan, you probably don't realize the gigantic stars that big men were like throughout the 80s and the 90s. I mean, this, this was really um, talked about building the roster was centered around, well, who is your big? Part of the reason, you know, as, as you and I discussed, Paul, that it was such big news for the Knicks to get Patrick Ewing and why that was such right. a big deal. Um, right. So Patrick Ewing seems like he, he's always been reserved. I mean, he's had some TV appearances, media appearances, things like that. Of course, now he's head coach of Georgetown, which which is awesome. Um, but can you just describe like his relationship with the media? Uh, I, I know he dealt with a lot of adversity through college. Um, Requiem for the Big East, for example, that 30 for 30 chronicles kind of some of the racism that he dealt with as, as a youngster. Um, during that time, he was with Georgetown. I mean, do you think that contributes to him keeping himself uh, maybe a little bit more reserved? Was his relationship with the New York media friendly, adversarial? Um, I don't know. If, I'll, I'll be quiet. If, if you could just give me your thoughts on his relationship yeah, with yeah, the media. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Um... It was, uh, I would say it was somewhat adversarial. At the very least, it was not adversarial, maybe just a little cold, distant. Mm. He always kept his distance. Um, mm. He didn't really let people in. Uh, his teammates and close friends, yes, but not the media and not the fans. And it was interesting because, you know, the mid-'80s, he came to the league in 85, it was really the time the league was exploding in popularity. Um, for a number of reasons, right? You had David Stern had just become commissioner a year earlier. Of course, you had uh, Michael Jordan came to the league a year earlier. The 80s was really when the league became, you know, started to become what it is today. Magic and Bird, uh, cable, cable television wasn't really big until the 80s. So there was much more exposure. And there were a lot more dollars as a result. Mm. There was a lot more money available. And most of the star players of the time, you think of, you think of Magic and Michael and, Charles Barkley and and others were pining for that attention and that money, and Patrick wanted no part of it. Um, Jack McCallum, of of who used to write for Sports Illustrated, referred to Patrick as the reluctant superstar. Mm. Um, Patrick would have, I think, would have been content playing in an empty gym every night. You mm. know, I, he didn't need it. He didn't need the accolades. He didn't need the attention. He wanted it because I think he wanted the money and the endorsements like everyone else. But he, it just wasn't. It was his personality. Um, I think Patrick was, was, is shy by nature. I think definitely think some of the things you touched on, uh, in addition to being shy, um, he experienced a lot of racism as, as in high school, in college. Mm. Um, Patrick was an immigrant. Patrick came to the United States at age 12 from Jamaica and, um, was made fun of a lot as a kid Mm. for someone because of his accent, the way he talked. Um, and I think that, uh, caused him to to pull inward a little bit as well. And he was a little self-conscious about his accent. So he wasn't anxious to do interviews. So yeah, when a lot of guys, you know, back then were wanting to get, have the camera and microphone in front of them as much as possible, he didn't want it at all. And was uh, very reluctant to do one-on-one interviews. He was very um, strict with when he was willing to talk to the media, um, gave a lot less access. Now he's professional. I don't want to, he never, never sure. blew off the media session. And, and I give him a lot of credit for that because as a lone star, 
on a team in New York City, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And even when they were losing, he sat, he took the questions every day, but he said, like, I'll give you five minutes and then gave five minutes and that was it. And then he was out. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, he was uh, standoffish in that way and was portrayed, I think, sometimes as rude and mm. by the media um, and, and gave, and, and the fans picked up on that as well. You know, he wasn't, he kind of had a scowl on the court and you didn't get the other side of it right he had that major intensity and anger but michael jordan had that and kobe would have that but then like but then they go in the press conference and they flash that million dollar smile mm-hmm. and you know talk about whatever they talked about and schmooze the media a little bit and it was all good patrick didn't do that he didn't want to do it it wasn't his personality and and so i i think he did uh he had a kind of rocky relationship with the media and as a result with the fans Mm, gotcha. Yeah, and some might say that, you know, being more reserved and back with the media is is just plain smart. Uh, yeah. You know, depending on, uh, you know, what, what your goals are. What, yeah, what there, was something, there was something about him that, I don't know, because, uh, you know, as you say that, I, I, I'll bring up another name. Derek Jeter mm. was very reserved with the media. He didn't give True. you anything. I mean, he was like cardboard in interviews. Um, but... I don't know. He he uh, he managed to navigate that better than Patrick did. I, I, he didn't he didn't play with that anger on the field. So maybe that wasn't that you know that kind of perception to begin with. Um, mm. I'm not sure why exactly, but Patrick just wasn't able to pull that off the way Jeter did. Yeah, maybe some weight lift from Jeter after having won a World Series. I you know, yes, I don't know. Purely yes. speculative. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what do you think? I, I know this is hypotheticals, but what do you think a, a title for the Knicks in the '90s does to elevate Patrick Ewing's star and uh, just kind of position as a legendary big in the league? Oh, tremendously, tremendously. I mean, there's that list that everyone runs down, right? Ewing and Carl Malone and John Stockton and Charles Barkley and go mm-hmm. back earlier to Elgin Baylor and whoever, and he's not on that list. Yeah, it's amazing, right? I, I I mentioned that Stark shot at the end of Game Six. If, if that shot goes in, it's Patrick's legacy is so different. And I think the way he viewed it is viewed in New York, in, in a large extent, is very different. I think he's the most under underappreciated superstar in New York sports history. Mm. And I think that changes that that whole narrative changes if he wins the championship and all the frustration that Nick fans had and all the, you know there was that distance with him and the fans and at times conflict, even with him and the fans that all fades away with the championship. And, uh, and I, yeah, I, I think, it, I think it would be very different. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if there's, you know, one ninety star, I mean, everyone talks about Barkley and those guys that you mentioned, but man, it would have been so impactful for Patrick Ewing. I, I mean, a guy who spent practically his entire career on the Knicks, um, you know, you really feel for him, even even as someone like myself who has no skin in the games for the Knicks, really just uh, I mean, his story is is so incredible. Uh, so one last question for you, Paul, and I really appreciate your time and, and joining us for this interview. I, I wanted to ask you about the modern day Nets. This is a question we've been thrown around with some of our, our guests from East Coast. Um, you know, we we've talked to um, younger guests who are like guys in. Uh, you know, their early 20s, because I wanted their perspective on what does Madison Garden, Madison Square Garden mean to you? What does this culture mean to you, et cetera? Um, 
Is there any credence to the idea that the Brooklyn Nets can garner favor with New York fans, can kind of like, you know, like talk of the Clippers being the uh, the team in L.A., which seems pretty ridiculous given the history in that city. Would you say the same thing holds true with the Nets? Like, let's say the Nets hypothetically win two of the next four, a la the Miami Heat big three, um, you know, which maybe the chances are pretty low even of that. But is there any chance that the culture changes in New York with performance like that? You know, I think... Like, if they do that, if they win two championships, I think they siphon off a number of the young fans, mm. right? Certainly kids. Um, they're not going to become New York's team. Um, not anytime soon, not for generations. Just because the Knicks go back generations, right? They're one of the original teams. They go back to 1946. That's generations upon generations. It, it's almost in your blood, right? Your parents watch the Knicks. Your grandpa watched the Knicks. Um, location matters. The Knicks are in midtown Manhattan, um, kind of at the epicenter of it all. And Brooklyn is great. And I mean, Brooklyn is totally different than when I was a kid right now, Brooklyn, but Brooklyn is cool. It's a place to be. It's not midtown Manhattan. So I think there's a little difference there that, that, you know, it's not Madison Square Garden. So I don't think they will ever become the team, but you know, for, for young people, when you, when you're growing up and, you know, if, you know how the Knicks do will impact that as well. I don't think it's, you know, if the Knicks, if they win the next two championships, but the Knicks become a very good team as well, that that will hold on to some of the fan base. But for, mm. for kids, you know, if you're 10, 11 years old right now and you're first getting into basketball and, and, and you know, and, and the, you know, the Nets are on national TV a lot more. They're getting the high exposure and you see them in the playoffs and they win championships and they have Durant and Harden and Kyrie and, and the Knicks are eh, maybe mediocre. Yeah. I think, I think they've got a, a lot of young kids. I don't think they're going to get, um, I don't think, I don't think many people are going to switch over, but I think that, I think they will get young kids in and around the city and, and, um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes over generations. Absolutely. Well, Paul, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, please plug for the good listeners projects you're working on, where they can find you on social media, uh, and please make sure to check out his books. Um, yeah. Go ahead. So, no. Well, well. Let me first say, Matt, I really enjoyed this as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, thanks to Justin too. Um, yeah. I. Uh, I'm not going to plug anything yet. I haven't decided. Sure. I, I think I have a new book topic, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to hold off on announcing that. Um, awesome. But but stay tuned. Follow me on, on Twitter at, at Pauli Nepp. That's P-A-U-L-I-E-K-N-E-P. Uh, you can follow me there. And I'll, I've, I have plenty of Nick stuff and um, basketball stuff in general. And uh, we'll have projects in the future. Awesome. Sounds great, Paul. We'll take care. Have a great rest of your Sunday. And thanks again for joining the show. All right. Thanks, Matt. Take care.